Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Going back to go forward, part two of Ephesians chapter four today. Many people are like, what happened to the latter half? So we're going back to, um, let's jump in chapter four of Ephesians verse 12. Let's jump right in um, to that part of the text. Um, We did finish up, I believe, on the five-fold ministry, which was put in place to verse 12, equip the saints for the work of service. So we're at this juncture in chapter 4 now with the equipment of the saints, the building up of the body for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Messiah. This will continue until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of Elohim to mature adulthood to the measure of the stature of Messiah's fullness. Now, we should be past this section in Scripture. We should be past this section in Scripture, but here we are back here again now, addressing the body, addressing disunity in the body, how we're going to see in the next verses, some are being tossed and blown around by every wind of doctrine and trickery of events. And... I have got to believe, and I mean, I haven't often gone back to go forward, have I? And here we are going back, and I go, well, why? Why? This has most significance to me. In the light of the events, I think, that are unfolding in this ministry, and when I look around at other ministries and take the temperature of what's going on, with believers across the world and the nation. I really believe we are on a precipice of exploding growth of people being sick of the lies, sick of the traditions, and wanting more of biblical foundational truth. But they don't want to go and turn into Messianic Jews or go and turn into this or that. And I just find here at this ministry, and we just had a little chat beforehand, and at the same place, there is something significant about to take root, but we kind of feel like we're in this holding pattern of, okay, where do we go from here? We've done the building. The work is done here locally And we're ready for the next level. But how do we get from here to where the Father truly wants us? I think I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. We're feeling it. We're experiencing it. But we maybe are not communicating with one another what's going on with us individually. But we need to bring it now together corporately to go, okay, what is the shift? Significant, significant, something like that, significantly, that is going to take place. Because it is happening not only locally, there's a national consciousness of awakening to truth in light of the events that are happening in the world. So I think we need to play 
close attention to this next part of Ephesians because I believe it's talking about the standard of maturity that we all really need to go to the next level. Because we are supposed, all of us, be raised up for service not only for the local community, but for the internet community, so that the body can do what? We have got to reach beyond ourselves. We have to reach beyond ourselves. And I go, well, how can I do that? How can we do that? And I believe that's kind of, we're like in this holding pattern now, awaiting on the Ruach, on the Spirit to direct us. Because a standard of maturity in all of us, myself included, is required. And that standard is set by who? Yahusha's perfection. That's the standard that's set. And the standard's not to be, it's not to be set by some kind of acceptable doctrine or dogma that's coming from this individual, that individual, or even a set of dogmas from a congregation. Because dogmas without leadership and dogmas without vision will only ever what? Divide. And I think we've witnessed that more division in communities because there's no vision. Division without vision, that brings more trouble and we've seen the fruit of that. But unity, as we get into this section of the scripture, it can never be set by an ecumenical decree. It can't be set by a board or by a leadership council. It's something that truly you have to wait on to be bestowed upon the body by the Spirit, by the Ruach. And I sense that is what we are waiting for. I know that is what I am waiting for, the pressing in of the Ruach in his elect people. Because we're all being stirred, maybe individually, but then when we come together and share how we're being stirred, the Ruach will lead us into the unity of bringing the building and the people to the next level. And that's where I believe that we're at, and we need to be able to reflect this work to the corporate body. We need to reflect this work that the Father is working on you individually, on me individually, because I think when we actually sit down and communicate, we'll find that the Father is bringing us into the same place to equip us to do the greater work for this generation now. Because this message hasn't got thus far so that it will fall flat. It is now just awaiting For us now to go and take the banner to the nations. How do we do that? I don't have all the answers. But together, collectively, does the body, will the body? Yes. I'm encouraging you. I'm asking you. Let's work together so that we can continue. Because the Father has got much work to do in all of us yet. All of us yet. And we have to be very careful though. Because at this stage of waiting, anticipating the Ruach, 
We have to be careful. I have to be careful to guard my mind from wicked thoughts, to guard my mind, to guard my tongue, to guard my ears. Because as we're going to see in these next verses, malice, deceit, gossip, mistrust, envy, slander, are all of the ingredients of a poisonous brew that Satan would have us all what? try to drink, to beguile us, so that the community would then forestall the work of the Ruach. We do not want that. We do not want that. So we have to be on guard just as the Ephesians were on guard. Now, my responsibility as the vicar, as the vicar here, of course, is is to assess the body. How are we doing? What's going on? And then to redirect its members, to redirect us in a direction if we've got sidetracked, if we've lost the vision. And that's what I hope I can do today is, hey, let's get the vision because I believe we're truly on the precipice of something magnificent. Because only proper growth individually will be reflective corporately. So it's not always my fault, okay? You all, we all have to take some personal responsibility in our lives because what's going on individually with you and in your families at home is going to be reflected corporately. So it starts off with the individual, each one of us doing our own work. Does that make sense? So then we can reflect that corporately. We can't just blame one another. And that's the problem. Our Western individualized We have this individualism, Western individualism, if you will. I think that's the biggest obstacle to overcome in achieving the raised up tabernacle of David, Acts 15. Because everybody is like a lone gun trying to do their own thing, when in really the raised up tabernacle of David is what? A work where all of his priests, all of his people come together in the unity to bring about the kingdom of Elohim. And incompleteness, in all truth, incompleteness is the reasons for people's stunted growth. People are incomplete in their marriages. People are incomplete with their children, in their families. They're incomplete in health and healing, incomplete in generational healing. It's incompleteness that really brings about a disunity. So for us as a body, we're supposed to be this dynamic, living, breathing organism. And as such, ministry has to be approached strategically not solely administratively. And I think that's kind of where we're at. Look at verse 14, because it says, as a result, we are no longer to be like children. We're not to be tossed around by the waves and blown all over by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of men with cunning in deceitful scheming. We have got to be bigger than the wind of teachings and doctrines out there. What's got to be more important to us is relationship rather than dogma. I spent 10 years chasing after every wind of teaching to make sure that it was truth and casting this one out, and it brought more division what is the unity? It has to be based about around the crucified and resurrected Mashiach and then going back to the simple truths of Scripture, starting out with the four commandments in the New Testament. Abstain. If you're going to come together, then you can't be sexually immoral. Abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? Abstain from things strangled and from blood. 
abstain from, what is the commandments? I'm now drawing blank as I'm winging it here. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain, abstain from idolatry. Abstain from things strangled and from blood. And go to the congregation and listen to the foundational teachings of Moses so that you'll get the rest of the information. We've got to start somewhere to build that building together. But going after every wind and every doctrine doesn't cause unity. It causes disunity. And that's what we'll find. And that's what the Ephesians were finding that Paul is addressing. I like the New English Bible translation of verse 15. It says, Whirled about by every fresh gust of teaching, dupes of crafty rogues and their deceitful schemes. I like that. That's a great one. That's the New English Bible translation. But divisions in the assembly come when spiritual authority is forestalled and a spirit of individualism takes over. And then you get these diverse teachings that begin to circulate. Tongues and keyboards in our day and age begin to clatter and clang. And the end result is you get this disunison. Disunity instead of unity. And as the vicar, I will always wait. I will always be patient and wait for the smoke to clear so that the work can continue to be rebuilt. That's something that I'm very good at because that's experience. Because I always just wait patiently in prayer and the smoke will clear and then the building and rebuilding will continue to go on with the right ruach of unity. And I feel that's where we're at right now. I truly, truly do. The Colossians, for example, they were suffering from this same spirit of disunity. They were getting so philosophical. What's philosophical? Philo, Sophia, the love of wisdom. They were all up in their brains. And then that philosophy, it led to a kind of proto-Gnosticism. And it did them no good. Having knowledge, but they didn't have the discernment. You can get so caught up in dogmas that you're missing, hey, there's, there's something far greater going on here than our dogmas. There is something that is happening generationally to us that we are a part of this great move. So again, look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all ways into Messiah who is the head. Remember, from chapter 5, we've gone back to go forward. We discovered the Greek word kephale, if you remember it, in the Greek. And that draws from the Septuagint kephale, again translated from the Hebrew word rosh and the Hebrew word nefesh. We found that this nephali is found within the source and soul language of the Tanakh. So what we're dealing with here is that Yahushua is not the boss of us. Yes, he is our high priest, but it's not about tyrannical power. It is, yes, he is our high priest. And because he is our high priest, he's not going to lord it over us like the ironic high priest did and be corrupt he is our source of everything that comes 
It's totally different. There's no tyranny with Yahusha. There is life and life more abundantly because his headship is based that he is the source from which everything flows, from which we receive salvation because he is the living waters sourced from the heavenly mountain of Yahuwah from which life flows. And I feel poetic. Let me read this to you. I love this. Rivers of living water. Rivers that flow from the throne. Rivers of flowing and blessing coming from Yahusha alone. Rivers of living water, rivers of life so free, flowing from thee, my Savior. Send now the rivers through me. Whoso is thirsty, come hither. Here is abundant supply. Water transparent as crystal. Come without money and buy. Cleanse me, oh cleanse me my Savior. Make me a channel today. Empty me, fill me and use me. Teach me to trust and obey. Then and then only, Master Yahusha, through me the rivers will flow. Thus and thus only will others learn of thy greatness to know. Now I surrender to Yahusha. Here I lay all at his feet. Anything, anywhere only, just for his service made meet. Yahusha is the source from which everything flows. And that is apparent the more that I walk with him. He's not like the Aaronic high priest who is the head that would lord and have a tyrannical position over the people. He is the head as in the kafali, the source from which everything flows to nourish and build up the body and equip us. And he's doing that. But what can distract us? All of the backbiting, all of the maliciousness, none of the FaceTime. We've got to have the FaceTime. Communicate so that we can do what he's required of us in this great, great generation that you and I are living with, that we get to disseminate the truth of the Malkitzedic message to the nations. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The building up of the body, of course, comes to us from the Tanakh principle found in Exodus chapter 26, where the boards and the sockets would be put together for the building and the raising up of the tabernacle. Of course, Acts 15 tells us that we're going to raise up that fallen tabernacle of David. Set in order against one another is what it says in the source text in the Torah, Exodus chapter 26. And if you actually look at that in the Hebrew, it's astounding. It actually says the Hebrew translation of set in order one against each other means to be equally connected each one to its sister. Equally connected each one to its sister. And there's a couple of Hebrew words that show up in the text. Tenon and Yatad. And this means nail. 
Because a nail does what? What does a nail do? It holds a whole structure together. It will hold the whole congregational structure together, making the whole equally connected, one each to its sister. And so we can see, even in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew word yatad is actually spelt yadot, and that means hand. So now you can make these connections between the nailed hand. So actually, in the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, it says equally, the nailed hand holds the whole structure together. And that's what Paul's directing us back to in Exodus 26. It's the nailed hand of Yahusha that holds the whole structure together. That's the unity. That's what we focused on. Not on the dogma to the left, the dogma to the right, because that will cause us to what? Become disconnected. We have to focus on our first love and the mission that he is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And as the head of that order, he's not going to have leadership that is leading with tyranny, but the source. So if he's the source, then I'm to act as a source. You're to act as a source. We're all to act as a source. And out of us flows the goodness and the sweet waters of salvation that will equip the building up. That's what we're to do. Not the diversity, not the disparity, not the dogmas, not the malice, not the deceit, not the gossip. None of that because we are in the business of building. So don't be discouraged. Even we're at this point right now where we're wondering, okay, dug a big hole, been digging for years. Now what's happening? You have to wait. Because it's in the waiting, that's when there is the sanctification that comes in preparation so that you can be equipped for the great work of ministry. I've seen it before many, many times. We have to wait and be patient. And then while we're waiting, act righteously and be ready and steady to go for the great work ahead. So again, I'm, I'm in, in, truly inspired because Yahushua was more than just a carpenter, you know. And we know from, from the scriptures that he was in the Greek. The Greek word there is tekton. And yes, you can translate it as carpenter. But they forget that this Greek word tekton, it comes from the Hebrew word harash. And that means he was a designer. He was an architect. It's a deeper work because he's not just actually nailing things together. He's got the whole vision and he's able to bring it in to fruition because he's actually swinging a hammer and pounding nails too. So he's not just standing off as a head, as in tyrannical rule, but he's actually the source that's actually going to come in and help us even with hammer and nail to bring this up together. Greater is he who is in you than who is in the world. Amen. So be inspired, be encouraged, because he is not done with us yet. Look at Shemot, Exodus 26, verse 30. And you shall raise up, come in the Hebrew, 
the tabernacle according to the fashion of it that was shown to you on the mount. This is what Paul is talking to when he's addressing the Ephesians in verse 16 of chapter 4. Raise up. The Hebrew word there is come. He's raising up the tabernacle and the, in the Septuagint, the translation of that Hebrew word comes across for raise up in the Greek, anastasis. Anastasis. And in the New Testament, how do they translate that raising up? That's the resurrection. All of this is, en- is enabled because of the resurrection of Yahusha goes directly back to the resurrection of the tabernacle. That's why in Acts chapter 15 it says, hey, it's time to raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. And you and I are that generation that is really seeing it come together in fruition. Exodus 26 verse 15. Make boards for the tabernacle of shittim wood standing up. Make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards. So you and I as congregational members, we are the building boards. And we are only going to stand together if we are coupled together by the currency of Messiah, which is the currency of redemption, which is silver. We have got to be constantly connected to that metallic frequency of Messiah through the Holy Spirit because that's what couples us together. Coupled together above the head of it unto one ring. Make bars of shittim wood, overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for the places for the bars, and thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. Verse 30. And thou shalt rear up or raise up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which it was showed thee on the mount. So whatever is going to be raised up, It needs to be raised up according to what was shown to Moshe Rabbeinu at the book of the covenant. Because that was when he was given the heavenly vision. This is a Malkizedic resurrection of the body of Messiah. And this is what you and I are partakers of. And it's all done through the redemptive work of Messiah. And the currency of Messiah, the currency of redemption is silver. But for us to truly not be distracted and to go forward in this work, we have to pay attention. Look at verse 17. So I tell you this, indeed, actually I insist on it in the master. What? Walk no longer as the pagans do. Oh, oh, this is, oh my goodness. I mean, are you allowed to even touch on this on December the 24th? Hang on a minute. Bible believers, if you're going to be part of the work of Messiah in the last generation, the message from St. Paul in the New Testament, this is a New Testament only verse, is what? Don't walk like the heathen do. If the pagans are doing it and they don't know Yahushua, then you most probably should have nothing to do with what they're doing. If you can go down the Wiccan shop and they've got a Christmas tree in there, then you might want to think, has that got anything to do with my Bible faith? 
If witches and warlocks are doing it, you might not want to do it. If sodomites, fornicators, and idolaters are doing it, then you might not want to get involved in that. Just saying. Just saying, maybe lights would go on and you'll go, hmm, wonder how biblical this really is. If the heathen and the pagan love it, maybe it's theirs to begin with. Maybe it got put in our brew and that would be called syncretism. Walk no longer as the pagans do, stumbling around in the futility of their thinking. I mean, futility. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of Elohim because of the ignorance in them due to the hardness of their heart. How many of you in genuine love have tried to share the truth about this season, but people's hearts are so hardened that they're not even receptive to even look at it? Don't don't even want to look at it. And that's because of the ignorance that's due them because of the hardness of their heart. Since they are, they don't care. They really don't care. They are past feeling. They have turned themselves over to indecency. There is more drunkenness and fornication in this time of the year than there is going to midnight mass. And that's not even right. But, you know, it's better than drunkenness and fornication. But I'm just saying... The season really does witness to itself for every kind of practice of immorality with greed for more. And one such practice that would come into mind right here, of course, I'll I'll read to you from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2. Now, I'm going to use the NNT here, though, because that's my preferred translation, the new Nolanite translation of Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2. Learn ye not the ways of the heathen, for the customs of the heathen are vanity. They cut down a tree out of the forest, the work of the decorator with a saw. They are beautified with silver and gold tinsel. They affix them with hammers and nails. They will set them up upon stand so that they will not topple. Pop quiz, what the hell are we talking about here? I mean, really, does it take much imagination? Really? You see, so Jeremiah is now warning us of the season and Christmas trees. This isn't something that is, is new. This is something that has come from way back, even the time of the Babylonians. And then it got exported from Babylon to Greece to Rome and, of course, the Germans. Those Germans loved the trees, and then, of course, it went over to England, and the Irish, of course, they picked up on that, and then their potatoes ceased to spud, and they decided, well, let's leave and come over to America because of the great potato famine, and hey, presto, along with the Germans and the Irish, we now have got ourselves a problem. So, again, I'm not going to get into a whole big doctrinal teaching about the errors of Christmas, but... I think some other people have done great jobs doing that. And in fact, you, you can do your own research. But I just have two simple questions because I love history and I love the Bible. And if we're really being honest, let's just let me ask these two questions. Why on earth 
did George Washington cross the Delaware River in the midst of the night on December the 25th in 1776? That's my first question. Why would he do that? Why would George Washington decide in the middle of the night on December the 25th, 1776, let's go across and attack the Germans? Let's do it. Why would he do that? And then the other question that you may be asking is, Germans? I thought it was the British. No. No. You see, the British, we decided that we like to employ German mercenaries. In fact, over a quarter of our army was made up of hired German mercenaries that we brought over here to squash you. But we ended up actually getting squashed ourselves. You should never rely on the Germans when it comes to battle. Okay. <laughs> so who were the Hessian forces that were on the other side of the Delaware River? That's my second question in New Jersey. And why were they so surprised of this attack? Just by asking those two questions, we can really delve into quite a lot of truth and find out exactly what on earth was going on. Because like I said, over a quarter of our forces, the British forces that we brought over here during the American Revolutionary War were actually paid German mercenaries. They were called the Hessians. Now, we brought them over here, and of course, by bringing them over here, those bloody German Hessians brought with them all of their pagan customs. They brought the tree and the wild hunt. They had brought all of their Christmas origins and their festivities because they dedicated the tree. They dedicated the wild hunt to their chief god, Odin, the god of the hunt, where they celebrated the rebirth of the great horned hunter god, the chief god, of course, of Norse mythology. This was what the Hessians were doing across the river on December the 25th. Now, Odin, of course, Odin was another name, the great hunter. Who was the great hunter? The mighty hunter in the face of Yahuwah? None other than Nimrod. So Odin is just the Germanic name for Nimrod, the mighty fun hunter who was in the face against Yahuwah. So these Germanic mercenaries that we hired to try and squash the Americans would, of course, offer a boar in sacrifice to the sun. They would propitiate to the queen of heaven, and they would do all of this on December the 25th. The boar, of course, in their pagan mythology was supposed to have slain the pagan false messiah. This is all Norse mythology. The boar was also a major article of the feast of Saturn that was going Going on in Rome, and the boar's head is still a standing dish in England at Christmas dinner, and most will still be consuming some portion of it during Christmas this season with the Christmas ham, right? Nothing new under the sun. Christmas was banned, is my point. That's why Christmas was actually banned in England in 1644 
the Puritans of New England, of course, thought, well, that's a bloody good idea. Let's ban it over here too. It's a bunch of heathen pagan nonsense, and we don't want it over here in New England. So the New Englanders, they followed suit, and they outlawed Christmas, and they made it illegal. Christmas was outlawed in Boston from 1659 to 1681, and the Plymouth Colony made celebrating Christmas, a criminal offense where you will be put under irons. How about that? Christmas trees and decorations were rightly considered to be unholy pagan rituals. And the Puritans even went so far as banning traditional Christmas foods. Now, I think they went a bit far. They wouldn't even let you have a mince pie around this time of the year. Christmas pudding, you weren't allowed any of that either. I mean, they can have the Christmas pudding, but I I do like a nice mince pie, I must say. But anyway, Puritan laws required that stores and businesses remain open all day long on December the 25th. Instead of being pestered, I mean, how many, I mean, I am constantly being pestered by these Salvation Army bloody bell ringers, right? I mean, you just try to walk downtown and they're just like coming up behind you, ringing away, you know. But back in the day here, oh, it was way better. You'd have the town crier going through town and he would be saying, no Christmas, ringing his bell. No Christmas. Christmas is banned. How about that? We should get some town criers versus the Salvation Army and see who's got the loudest bells. But this was all happening back in the colonies. Christmas didn't even become a legal holiday until 1856 in New England. This is the kind of history that makes me go, hmm. Because as historians... Now you can take history and read your Bible and you are really without excuse. You don't even have to get into a massive teaching about Christmas because there's lots out there and you can do your due diligence. But just asking a couple of simple historical questions that then will draw you and lead you to the same conclusion that Jeremiah said. You should in maturity be able to move on to the things of Yah and put away childish things. That's all I'm saying, okay? Because this really tells me that if Christmas wasn't even legal until 1856 in New England, then what's been happening in the 150 years since? Apostate Christianity has been bewitched. That's simply it. Because 170 years ago, Christians knew that this was a pagan Germanic culture of death. They knew and they banned it and it was illegal, which is exactly why George Washington took advantage of the German Hessian forces being drunk, being in fornication, 
worshipping underneath the Christmas tree, and he knew that was the prime time to attack, of course, and he did that on Christmas Day, 1776. There's a little bit of American history which helps us now to understand the pagan history that has infiltrated the faith that was once delivered to the saints. But we don't have this excuse that this is Christian because it's not. Because true Christians 170 years ago, they weren't doing it. It's only apostate Christianity in the past 150 years that has adopted syncretism and the worship of the heathen into the faith. And we know that that's just not so. However, verse 20, you did not learn Messiah in this way, did you? Come on. I mean, let's just grow up. We did not learn of, we shouldn't have learned of Messiah in this way. Maybe we did, but we shouldn't have. If indeed you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Yahushua, with respect to your former lifestyles, you are to lay aside the old self-corrupted by, um, excuse me, the old self-corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be renewed in the Ruach in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, created to be like Elohim in true righteousness and holiness. So we just simply need to lay aside the pagan traditions. We need to stop the cycle of lying to children and following the crowd to falsehood. I mean, that's simply it. Walk differently than the nations is the single most identifying mark of true believers. And it goes all the way back to the Torah and the nation of Israel, biblical Israel. Is do not worship me the way the heathen worship their gods and say you're doing it unto me. It is an abomination, thus saith Yahuwah. And he says the same thing today as he did to Israel back then. And putting away Paganism is the true mark of a devout believer. That's the truth. That has been the biggest stumbling block to the children of Israel since the inception of the nation is syncretism and pagan. Oh, well, you know, well, you know, we love Yahweh, but why don't we just worship Yahweh on this day? And I know that Yahweh is without image and form, but why don't we just bring out the golden calf Apis and we'll do it unto Yahweh? It'd be good, you know. We have a little bit of fornication, you know, in there, maybe a bit of music. No. No, that's not going to go down too well, Aaron. But this is the problem, right? Come on, those of you that are older. When you were children, I'm talking to the 60 and above. When you were children and you went to church, were there Christmas trees erected in your congregations? There were? Oh, well, you didn't go to the right churches then. Well, when I was a boy, and I'm not yet 60, they would never have done that in the C of E. Now, outside, down the road, down the pathway a little bit, yes. Outside of the church grounds coming in, yes, maybe. But never in the building. Even at Calvary Chapel. Oh, no, they didn't. And then they did. We were there when they made the shift. Oh, no, you would never do that. And then, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. 
So again, we just have to see this syncretism just creeps in more and more. We need to walk differently than the nations. That is the single most identifying mark of the true devout believer. Israel's chief undoing was syncretism. Always. How do we think we're going to fare any different from them? There's no way. Jeremiah 13.10, you refuse to hear my words and you walk in the imagination of your own heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them. Incorporation into the commonwealth of Israel brings with it an expectation of obedience to Yahuwah and setting aside of non-biblical pagan customs. Will we do it? Will we? Or will we make excuses? Look at verse 25. So, laying aside lying, like lying to your children that some fat dude's going to come down the chimney, I mean, that would terrify my daughters. Yeah, kids, yeah, go to bed, you know, right? You know, the, the, the fat guy, the guy that wanted you to sit on his lap in the mall, you know, that guy, the weirdo? Well, he's coming down the chimney tonight when you're asleep. What? Wow. You know, the weird fat dude in the mall that everyone like, you know, kids, you know, sit on his lap. You know that one? The one that just got released last last year from, you know, penitentiary for child molestation. Yeah, that one, right? I mean, you think I'm joking, but how many times do we read about this in the news? Terrible, terrible. We need to lay aside lying to each one of you and speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give the devil a foothold. So the pagan way of life encapsulates Christmas that's all encapsulated in this whole season that we are, we are in, that we fight against, is characterized by an insatiable desire to participate more and more in forms of cultural festivity. Isn't it? More and more festivities. Refusing to address the reality of the Bible, refusing to address just a, even a little bit of history that I shared with you and refusing to address syncretism in the life of the believer. We have to address these things because this generation that we're in right now, we will be held accountable. You can go, oh, well, my great-grandmother, you know, she used to cook a nice Christmas turkey and she was a devout believer. Yeah, but your great-grandmother couldn't Google pagan origins of Christmas while she was sitting there having a cup of tea, could she? No, but you can. You have access literally to the greatest libraries in the world at the press of a keypad. You are without excuse. Great-grandmother, they didn't even have those books in the local library. So we we don't have the excuses that great-grandma had. This generation will be held to the greatest account because knowledge has increased. We are going to and fro, as the prophet Daniel said, and that one will be held to account. You can't just go like this when it's right there before your face. Bible believers, we will be held to account for the knowledge. He who knows it is sin, to him it is sin. So if you want to do your research, put up Google, pagan roots of Christianity. 
return. See you in about six months. Okay? Because that's the reality. It's everywhere. You don't need a sermonette from me about it. Because really, we are without excuse. We cannot hide behind, well, I didn't know. People do know. They just do not want to hear. They do not want to hear and take action and responsibility. There's a clear reworking now as we progress through the scripture here into verse 28, 27 into verse 28 now. There's a a clear reworking of already received and accepted teachings from the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We've got the Psalms, we've got Isaiah, we've got Zechariah coming into play. In fact, you can turn if you want to Zechariah 8.16. But this is telling us that the first century assembly, they were were immersed in the Old Testament. That was the scriptures. The New Testament wasn't, wasn't scripture back then. They were letters that were passed to and fro. So they were immersed in the Torah. They were immersed in the prophets. They were immersed in the writing. Zechariah 8.16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith Yahweh. Look at our text in verse 28. Of course, now you can see the parallel. The one who steals must steal no longer. Instead, he must work, doing something useful with his own hands. So he may have something to share with the one who has need. Of course, Paul was addressing the slave class. There were a lot of released slaves that were most probably little crooks that were in their midst that had to be dealt with. You can't be nicking stuff anymore. You know, you're born again. You'll come into the congregation of faith. Go and get a job. Don't be nicking pies out of the back. You know, be... Do good works with your hands. Let no harmful word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for building others up according to the need, so it gives grace to those who hear it. Of course, I love James, Yaakov 1 verse 19. So then, my beloved Israelite brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of Yahuwah. How many times have you read that? I can't tell you how many times I read that, but it's only in the past year or so that that one verse really impacted me as a parent, as a father. For the wrath of Matthew does not bring about the righteousness of Yahuwah. So when I'm angry... The result is not going to be righteousness of Yahuwah. It might be self-righteousness, Matthew, but it's not going to bring about the righteousness of the Father. So if I'm angry at my... And I'm speaking to myself here. My wife's going to be taking notes. Look, you're recording me. If I'm angry at my children because I want them to do something, it's usually because I'm looking for a result that I'm not getting and I'm angry, it's not going to bring about the righteousness of Yahuwah, is it? 
It's going to bring about something else. Self-righteousness, my own desires, my own wills. So it made me start to realize, hang on a minute, this is my problem. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with humbleness the engrafted word, the engrafted Torah, which is able to save your souls. Now, I'm going to spend some time on this because I need to preach to myself. I've preached to you guys for a long time, but now I've got to preach to myself. Because those of you who know me, I I do run hot. I mean, my blood is always simmering. I mean, I just, that's just the way I am. And it, it can be used for great good. But as I've got older, I've realized that there's some problems and I need to temper this. Because truly, as I mature, I realize that I want to bring about the righteousness of Yahuwah. So my passion and my zeal, I have to redirect into building ways, not destructive ways, as I did in my youth. So again, I love getting older. Because it brings a balance and a temperance into my life. Now, so don't just switch off because I'm not the only one here with these issues. I'm not the only one. It's impossible for me to be so. Because people could say, well, I'm not angry, Matthew. It just kind of sounds like your problem. I'm switching off right here. No, it's not. It's our problem. It's all of our problem because, as I've said before, we're all made collectively. This part of the section of the scripture is talking about the building up of the body. We are all made collectively in the image of Elohim. And he is one angry Elohim. And now now people, the heathen that doesn't understand Yahweh, that's what keeps them away from him. Well, how many of you have ever heard this? Well, I don't understand a God. A God that would kill a a poor little Buddhist child. And a God that would, you know, let the Chinese starve. And uh, I don't, I mean, if that's the kind of angry God, then I don't. How many of you have heard that? That's That's the idiotic excuse of the heathen that does not follow through and they just switch off. We could all do that. Yes, Yahweh does get angry. But you you can't just leave it at that. You have to investigate further and go, what is the origin of Yahuwah's anger as the origin of my anger or your anger? And then anger isn't bad because it says, be angry and do not sin. So therefore, let us now transform our anger. That's what I want in my life, is to transform my anger. Because Yahweh's anger is different. His anger will lead to what? Righteousness. But my anger leads to self-righteousness. It's usually because you disrupted me in the middle of a comfort. I mean, that's the honestly honest truth. I'm just, you know, I made myself a cup of tea, got myself a square of chocolate, I've been working all day, I've been busy studying, teaching, whatever, finally going to get to sit down in my leather chair in front of my wood stove, got my square of chocolate, I got my cup of tea, my fall over a bloody piece of Lego. I mean, whoever invented Lego, I mean, those people should be put in prison, I mean, have you ever walked on one of those things in the middle of the night? I mean, they are crippling. And Levi right now is in this stage. They are 
everywhere. And I'm oh, I walk up. And I can lose my bananas. And then I'm embarrassed. But that stuff is everywhere in our house right now. And it is not good for me. Interrupting my comforts brings about this self-righteous anger. And I'm like, okay, okay, I've got to teach on this today. It's a problem. Just being real with you because I want to get to the greater good. Yahweh's anger is different than my anger because Yahweh's anger is utterly right, which leads to righteousness. It is utterly right. It is utterly good. It is utterly appropriate. And in fact, it is beautiful. It's never fickle. It's not irritable like me. In fact, his anger flows out of his attributes. Yahuwah, Yahuwah Elohim. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. Abounding in goodness and truth. He extends mercy to thousands, forgiving the iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But he visits the iniquity on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So again, you can see... His anger, but his anger is connected to his attributes because he's loving. He's angry at what harms us. Sin, paganism, syncretism. And we need to learn how to harness the anger within us and then direct it back to its divine origin. And that's what, when I've accomplished that in my life, this is one of my life goals. I'm going to be a way better man. And now my wife's going to be like, oh, I'm so in love with you. Right? <laughs> my anger, on the other hand, is just messed up. <laughs> it's totally messed up. It's distorted. It's disordered. It's all over the place. But how does it sinfully manifest itself? All of our anger, if we think about it, every one of us is different. Mine's with the Lego, one instance. Irritation, yelling, screaming. Some people, it's a slow simmer, isn't it? They're just bubbling, 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 and you're like, bubbling, bubbling, blum. Some people are passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive in their anger. Some are brooding and mysterious and dark. Other people, maybe they just withdraw. Maybe they soak. Maybe they're explosive. But anger can destroy people. It can destroy people through gossip. Sometimes anger can be like this biting sarcasm. Maybe it's just oversensitivity. Some people are so angry, they just get oversensitive. You can't say a thing without offending them. Overreaction to everything. Maybe they're just cynical. Other people's anger is it just comes out in the way they speak. They just speak with harsh tones. We have a relative like that, don't we? She just always seems to be angry, or auntie. It's just the way she speaks. <laughs> just constantly, just in harsh tones. Don't know who's going to be spending Christmas with her, but we certainly won't because we don't celebrate it. We're free of that kind of anger now. Some people refuse to listen. That's their kind of anger. They dismiss others. Maybe they belittle others, their opinions. Maybe it's just outright violence 
or you can be just plain mean. But anger can manifest itself in all kinds of different ways with different people. Just because you don't run hot like me doesn't mean you're angry because you're passive-aggressive or you're a gossip or you're just, you know, I'm just saying, examine the way you manifest anger because all relationships I've dealt with over the years in counseling, at some point in those counseling sessions, I've always gone, ah, anger. There's the root of anger and its connection into the problem that is now manifesting. Anger is pervasive, isn't it? Especially today. It's everywhere. You just open up the media on your phone and read the newspaper. Is it full of anger? It's full of anger, isn't it? Listen to the radio. Full of anger. It's everywhere. Media today is full fueled by anger. We read about it. It's in me, it's in you, it's in her, it's in him. It's everywhere. But realize there is such thing as a good anger and a bad anger. But anger is never neutral. It's never passive. It's either good or it's bad. And the scriptures, man, The scriptures are full of anger. You read the last three chapters. I told you many a times. I like to read the last three chapters of Judges to put my kids to bed. I mean, that is full of anger. When they're misbehaved. All right, I'm going to give you some nightmares tonight, children. But the scriptures are full of anger. In fact, it's a whole record of anger. The anger of Yahuwah and the anger of man. That's what this whole book is about. Holy, righteous anger of Yahuwah. Boom, on a collision course confronting the unrighteous anger of man. And that's what it's about. Yahuwah's ways versus our ways. And that is the difference between the anger that leads to righteousness and the anger of self-righteousness. And these two angers that you see throughout Scripture, the anger of Yahuwah and the anger of man, they run through the whole veins, the whole narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And they can never coexist, never coexist. In fact, they're on this crazy like collision course. I've said this before, and we know that that inevitable collision was where? When Messiah Yahushua was nailed to the tree. That's when the anger of Yahuwah and the anger of man collided together. And Yahushua then what? Took upon that whole wrath. Because what we could see in that inevitable collision course is the wrath of Yahuwah nailed his son to the tree. And it was the wrath of man, the Romans and the Jews, that hated Yahushua that nailed him to the tree. And there was the collision course on those two types of anger. And that is where we find ourselves. We manifest our whole anger in wickedness, and Yahweh manifests his whole anger in righteousness. And Yahusha, he took the whole lot on, didn't he? He took the anger of Yahweh on, but he also took the anger of man on. And that's how we have hope. Because of that collision course, 
I mean, the more and more I study and read and and pray and and find out more about my Savior, the more I fall in love with him. This was just one of those things that just truly impacted me, that Yahushua not only bore the Father's anger, but he bore the anger of mankind that literally had always been coming along like this throughout the Old Testament, the Torah, the Tanakh, the writings, and then boom, the collision. And we're on the other side of it now, and from that collision comes my redemption your redemption because of this very collision this is amazing whereas satan had a whole different idea didn't he he was trying to get what out of that collision he was trying to get wreckage he was trying to get carnage but it didn't have that because he never understood the anger of elohim he only understood the anger of man He only understood the anger of man. He did not understand the anger of Elohim. So for you and I to get this building up, and that's a long way for me to get to where I'm saying right now, for you and I to raise up this tabernacle of David, we've got to set aside the things that would bring up the anger of man, and we've got to get past it so that we can move towards what? manifesting if we do get angry we be angry and not sin because the anger of Yahweh is that collision course that brought about the redemption there's a positive force it's a productive force because anger is never neutral and we can harness it to bring about the raising up of this tabernacle of David be angry and not sin we need to learn how to redeem our anger We need to learn how to redeem our hurts and we need to transform it and restore it into righteousness. James 1.20, for the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of Yahuwah, but Yahuwah's anger is righteousness. Our anger is active. It is productive. It's pursuing something. When we're angry, it's pursuing something. It's not aimless. It's not random. It's actively seeking something. It has a purpose. My anger, when I'm angry, it has a purpose. It attempts to achieve something. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because anger, it's active. It's productive. Our anger's goal should be to achieve the righteousness of Elohim. It's just that our anger is so often misdirected and perverted. Think about it. Our anger is often an expression of self-righteousness and, dare I say it, entitlement. I think of me, I'm entitled to some peace and quiet. I've had a hard day. I'm entitled. No. I'm entitled to walk through my living room without getting bombed by Legos. But no, I'm not. (laughs) Apparently. Blame shifting, though, is a huge part of our anger, isn't it? Why? Because the wrath of man, our anger, rejects Yahushua bearing our blame. Think about it. The anger of man... It's full of blame shifting because the anger of man rejects Yahushua taking our blame. You know with these liberals and these heathen that hate Yahushua, why? Because they're so angry. Why are they so, why are they so hostile against Christianity? Why are they so hostile against the faith? Because at the end of it, Yahushua took their anger and they don't want to acknowledge that. Therefore... 
They're still angry. Right? They're angry at the fact that he took their anger and they want to keep it. Because they don't want to acknowledge that he is the Savior. And therefore, they're angry. How come the liberals aren't angry at the Muslim God? Because his carcass is dead and rotting in the grave. Just a broken clay idol, right? See, blame shifting is huge. And this is the point. Somebody's got to bear the blame and it's going to be what? It's going to be you. It's not going to be me. It's going to be you. No, that's all self-righteousness. But when we look underneath our anger, we'll often find that it is self-righteousness because idolatry is at the heart oftentimes of anger. But we want to now come across and understand the righteousness of Yahuwah. That brings about true, true redemption. There's four personality types. I'll finish up here in a few verses. Number one, the man that's easily angered and easily calmed. Well, then he loses what he gains. Number two, the person that's hard to anger and hard to calm. What he loses, he gains. And the man that's hard to anger and easy to calm, truly a righteous man. So we need to be in that category of hard to anger and easy to calm. And then there's the other person, Easy to anger and hard to calm, a truly wicked man. Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Ruach HaKodesh of Elohim, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and quarreling and slander, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, be compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as Elohim in Messiah also forgave you. That's it. As Yahushua said back in Matthew, I mean, it really comes down to mastering the tongue, doesn't it? Mastering the tongue. Let me finish with with a poem about the tongue. Let's contemplate the tongue, the most powerful muscle in the whole body. The tongue. Think about the tongue's position in the body. It's kind of weird, isn't it? When you think about it. It's not like you think the bicep or something. But the tongue being the most powerful, powerful muscle of the whole body. All parts of the human body, they stand upright. Oh, no, but not the tongue. Think about the tongue. Oh, the tongue. The tongue's the part of the body. No, the tongue gets to recline in leisure. All parts of the human body They're outside facing the blustering elements. Oh, no, not the tongue. Well, the tongue is nice and warmed. It's nice and cozy. It's inside. All parts of the human body, they can get injured, right? They're prone to injury. Oh, no, not the tongue. Oh, no, that tongue is all safely nestled inside, reclining in the warm. It has got two big walls up in front of it protecting it. One of bone, the teeth, and one of flesh, the cheeks. 
Oh, how that tongue can get so prideful, reclining in the warm, hiding behind two big walls. You can see how it can become such a muscle of destruction. What can more be done for you, O tongue, you reclining, lazy, cozy, defended, lying tongue? You set yourself up as a reclining king in a well-defended palace, tasting every delicacy that comes your way, every debauchery you like to taste that comes your way, O you wicked, lying, defensive tongue. Isn't that a great poem? It really is. I mean, it just shows you, doesn't it, how we have to master the tongue if we're going to be about the body of building up this fallen tabernacle of David. Ephesians chapter 4 is preparing us for something great. But for us to accomplish that, we have to master ourselves, master our tongue, not get distracted by the pagan foolery of the nations and continue with the redemptive work that is only found in Yahushua, our Messiah. Ephesians, don't be like the Colossians that got so into philosophy, the love of wisdom, stargazing and Gnosticism that they lost their way. Don't be like the Corinthians that got so caught up in debauchery and pagan festivities that they lost their way in immorality. But stand so that you can be ready to raise up these building boards that are coupled together with the redemptive quality of Messiah. And then you and I will be ready to do the great work in this generation. Amen. Questions, comments? Yes. Brother Matthew, uh, with anger um, being easily, easily on, on my end, too, that's something I battle with. I'm a hothead. Um, um, so there's biblical shadow pictures of, of, of patriarchs and even renewed covenant uh, uh, patriarchs being, being of anger. There's, there's Samson. There's... Um, Abraham going to war. There, there's David. Um, you go Paul rebuking Peter. Um, Jesus turning the table, but he also says turn the cheek. What are um, the protocols, or what? What is the point where, when we're being ostracized or persecuted, what, when's the point for us to have that righteous anger? Right. So there's a righteous anger, and again, I think the root of it is to identify. This is what it. For me, how I'm working through this in my life is going, is going, why am I angry right now? Is this anger because I am, I want something. I want something. I want some peace. I want some quiet. I want something comfortable. Is it for my self-righteousness? Is that why I'm angry? And most of the time, yes. Now, on sometimes when you answer that, you'll be like, no, this is righteous anger. This is the anger of, like, of Elohim because of wickedness and sin. 
or somebody is being harmed or persecuted, and then you can be righteously anger, angry. So again, I think if it's directed away from the self, then that can be oftentimes righteous anger. But oftentimes the reason that we're angry is because of something within us. Because I've been denied a comfort. I have, um, I'm going to have to do something that I didn't want to do. And that is self-righteousness. So that's how I try to identify anger when I'm angry. Is it, is it from me? Most of the time, my wife's not nodding, so that's a good thing. Um, it's, I think, from me. So that's kind of, I'm going to work in progress. So any other questions? Uh, yeah, Matthew, we do have uh, one or two. Um, for spouses that uh, are split in their homes on this uh, issue of paganism and Christmas and all these different um, areas to navigate. So again, it, it really depends on the family. Hope if, if the, the, the man, the, the, the husband is the leader of the house, and again, he's the source, the head. That's not a tyrannical rule, but he's the source from which truth must flow. So therefore, he's to establish and has the right to establish a house based on biblical truth. So he, the, the, the leader needs to establish truth in the house and take and have that authority to get rid of paganism and lies. So in that question, if the male is a believer, he has the source text we've just found as the source to deliver truth into the house and to be a guard to prevent lies from coming in. That's one thing. Now... If you're in a situation that's different than that, you're going to be under a different equation. So each and every person has to investigate that. At some point, though, you have to stand for the righteousness of Yahuwah and get the paganism out. That's the end goal. At some point, if somebody is so... um, what was the word that we looked at in the scripture? What was it? They were so hard-hearted mm-hmm. and unable to receive the truth. At some point, then you have to make a stand and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve Yahuwah, and I cannot allow the paganism in anymore, even if that is the wife that has to make that stand. Because oftentimes, if the wife is the spiritual leader of the house and the husband isn't following, then she has been given that prophetess um, position because the male has abdicated responsibility and oftentimes if a man has abdicated his spiritual authority within the house then the woman then has the right to of course walk in biblical righteousness and be that source of truth and head within that house because the man has given up and abdicated but if the man is a devout believer and um, the wife is still involved in paganism he then, then needs to make that stand as well of the source of truth and being the wall protecting from error and deceit. Because otherwise it's going to go down to the next generation. And there is the big problem. And then it just continues to go. But again, you have to do this with much 
much care and love because it's easy for me to stand up here and say this, that, and t'other, but I'm not there in the midst of it. You guys are, and you have to navigate this very, very lovingly and carefully. We've gone through this over the years, and I mean, I remember I can share with my wife, I mean, when I came to her, and we used to have all kinds of lovely olive wood um, things that we'd collected over the years from our time in Israel. And, and my wife loved cru- crucifixes. We had, not with Jesus on them, but crosses everywhere. And finally, you know, I came to my wife, and I'm like, honey, <laughs> I'm, like, I, I just, I, I'm like, Yahushua was nailed to a tree. I'm just not up with the cross, you know. I mean, I believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Yahushua, but I don't think, you know... That was a hard one for my wife. And then when I came into the whole graven image, I I don't want graven images in my house. And I know other people might be different, but for me, I just want to go with two-dimensional things. I don't want three-dimensional things in my house. That was another big one, you know. The family's like, okay. But that's just me. I got totally convicted. So we had little children then. Out go the dolls, out go the dolls. All right, you, if you want a doll, children, you can pick from the Amish faceless dolls. That's it. And then people are like, you're going way too overboard. But that's the way I am, and I like that. It's a simplicity. But that's for me in my house. But I don't get to say that in somebody else's house. That's just for me. But I've always been one that at some point you're going to have to make decisions each and every one in your own house and take the temperature of your house and that is something that is has to be done very respectfully because everybody's different you know and then people might come into my house and say well maybe you know there's something else that they see but we all have to do it differently because we all have come from different places that was a long-winded answer, wasn't it? Give me another one. Yes, um, we do have a question on how you um, respond about the male and female roles and how do you handle people that disagree on the Holy Spirit being feminine? Well, you, everybody's entitled to, dis- to disagree, for sure and for certain. I disagree with myself constantly. I would just say go into the Bible and look when we're in the whole of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Ruach HaKodesh is in feminine terms. Throughout its source text of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and then when it comes into the New Testament, it's translated into a Greek neuter term. So again, I think the language bears up the femininity in the language if you just do a, just looking at the language. And then you make your own conclusions and you can either accept it or not from that point. But, you know, the wisdom literature, the feminine ruach, it's extremely obvious in the Hebrew language. And then Greek new to text. So, yes. Will our next teaching be the Ezekiel Scrolls? No, it will not. It will be coming shortly, though. But I thought I'd take a couple of weeks off, um, not from teaching, but to do some topical teachings, just to kind of recalibrate before we go into Ezekiel, because that's a tremendous work. It is most probably, without, not most probably, it is for a certainty the grandest, greatest undertaking of my life to be able to teach the book of Ezekiel 
in its proper scroll order. And it is huge. I mean, absolutely huge. And I am fearfully and um, wonderfully, I pray, will teach it. But it is not something I have taken lightly. And um, But I've thought, well, instead of going right from that, well, let's have a couple of weeks of... Uh, recalibration. So we do some topical teachings and then jumping into Ezekiel intro in most probably two, two to three weeks time here. So yes, excited about that, really am. All right, stick around. Um, Abba, we thank you for Shabbat. We thank you for, Abba, your work that you're doing in your people. And we pray your blessing upon our time in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen.